0: I'm smiling because I'm I'm thinking about a question that I already know the answer to. How many of you have been accused of being, you know, too into it on a Sunday morning worship service? Like too fired up. Anybody like been too fired up? Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> That's kind of why I was smiling. Right? I knew the answer to the question that I was going to ask. The, re- the reason that I that I asked that question is because there is, and, and it may be the only time. There is one time in the Bible when somebody gets in trouble for being too into it when they come to worship. Now I. I want to go there because that forms the backdrop for Psalm 24. So Psalm 24 is uh, the recognition by the people of God that they have this King of Glory for their God. The recognition by the people of God that they have Yahweh The God of all gods for their God. And when somebody got it, they couldn't help it. They were just a little too into it. At least they were accused of being too into it by somebody who wasn't. Let me say it that way. And so let's read the psalm and then we'll look at why that's the case. Psalm 24, it's a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is a generation of those who seek Him. Who seek the face of, Jacob, of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates. Most scholars would uh, assume that this psalm 24 was written for the people of God to worship God as the ark was brought into Jerusalem. So the ark, you recall, had in it the, uh, the stone tablets that Moses had received on the mount that uh, communicated the person of God and the requirements of God, and in fact embodied the very presence of God. It tells us in in Numbers uh, chapter ten that when the ark would go forward, it would go forward looking for a place for the people of God to move in the wilderness, and and everyone would follow. And when it would stop, the, this presence of God would stop. All the people would gather, and they would stay. Uh, surrounding the presence of God, this ark, this presence of God, was uh, significant uh, in the history of Israel. They certainly it led them through the wilderness, but but more than that when they came uh, to the end the, the, the priests bearing the ark put their toe in the Jordan River, in flood stage, and the Jordan River backed up and all the people walked through on dry ground because the presence of the Lord was with His people. It was shortly thereafter that uh, for six days in silence, the priest carried the ark around the city of Jericho. And then on the seventh day they went around again and they blew the trumpets and the walls came down and it was the presence of God that brought the victory. And they established a permanent, well, a semi-permanent home for it in the tabernacle where all of Israel would come and they would worship God because the presence of God was among His people. And you know what? Some of them became like some of us and it just wasn't a very big deal. We have the presence of God. Ho-hum. And they began to forget about God and they began to go after the gods of the Philistines and the Moabites and God brought all kinds of um, problems against them and they would, they would just swing back and forth between... Um, Following God and repenting and going to these other gods until um, Eli was the the priest and his sons were uh, evil, did all kinds of uh, horrible stuff, and God had had enough. And the Philistines came and they defeated Israel, and the it was the most resounding defeat they had ever experienced because. This ark of the Lord was captured. The presence of God had left His people. In fact, uh, Eli, the priest, his he had a grandson born that very day. They called him Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed. This king of glory has left the building, and he, God, was gone turns out that the ark, they said, what are we going to do now with an ark? We captured to capture the ark. What are we going to do with it? As they said, well, it needs to go in some sort of a temple or some sort of a, you know, um, sacred place. And so they they took the ark of God and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Only to wake up the next morning and have their their uh, idol Dagon face down on the ground. And they thought, that's no good. And they propped him back up and Next morning he's down again, and then the next time he's shattered to pieces, because the presence of the Lord was there with the ark. and it turns out the people of the town the the text says the ones that did not die all got tumors, okay so <laughs> pick your poison, right. Because the presence of God was invading this um, community of idol worshippers, and it did not go well. He came not only in blessing of his people, but in judgment on his enemies. Finally, they had enough, and they decided we got to get rid of this. And so they they put it on an ox cart, and they said, "This is how we're going to know if this if this happened to us by accident." Or if this happened to us because the presence of God is actually here. What we're going to do is we're going to get a couple couple milk cows. Just had calves. Put the calves in the pen over here. Put the ark on the cart. Send the cows that way. And if if they go that way and don't go back to their calves, we'll know that this happened to us because the presence of God was here and not by accident. And so they turned those... Cows loose, and they went straight away back to Israel. And uh, the ark was parked in a couple different farmers' uh, barns, I imagine, for a while, until David decided that it really deserved to be in the city of God, in his uh, among his people, in a place where God could be worshipped. And David went after the ark, and not paying very close attention put it back on an ox cart, decided to take it to Jerusalem. And one of the priests, his name was Uzzah, he he saw that the cart hit a rock in the road and he reached out to keep the presence of God from falling on the ground. And God struck him dead immediately. And they stopped right there and everybody gasped and waited. And they prayed and they repented and they started over. This time reviewing what God said about His presence and what God said about uh, what, how He wanted the ark to be handled. And the priests began to carry it and they went six whole steps just to make sure. And they stopped and they offered uh, sacrifices to God. And when God didn't strike anybody else, And accepted their sacrifice, they realized God's presence is coming to His people again. And the priest carried it then into Jerusalem and at the point where they entered Jerusalem again. David could no longer contain himself. The presence of God was returning to His people. It is a good thing to have the presence of God with you. And so David began to dance. And he got, he got so fired up in his dance that his wife said, Honey, you're just a little too into it. Okay, You're looking a little silly. And he said, I'd look sillier than this if I had the chance, in order to communicate the joy and the delight that I have and that God's people have, that His presence is now with us. Now, I tell you that it's because it's on that occasion. That occasion when David... Um, was uh, upbraided by his wife for being too into it that he wrote Psalm 24. That's why he's talking about the King of glory coming in. That's why he's inviting the gates to raise their heads and to hope and to express their own joy. In, In other words, to become alive with the joy that... Yahweh, their God, is returning to His people. I wanted to tell you that story because the mission of New Life Church is to engage those people who are disconnected from God, and all of us are disconnected at some level, so that they delight in God. Through Jesus. Really, all that needs to happen for us is that our hearts need to be happy that God is our God and that He is among us. You see, that's, that's the goal of our church to try and do that for each one of us. It's, a, it's, it's the goal as we scatter here that we might engage other people who maybe don't know uh, Christ and don't have a relationship with God, that they, might, they too might delight in God. And yet, I fear that some of us, somehow, we're not that convinced that this King of glory is one that should make our hearts happy. And so Psalm 24 really has the, the content underneath the reason for the rejoicing, not only that David did as the ark entered the, entered the city, but it has the reasons for rejoicing that you and I need in order that our hearts might be happy as they should, and that we might delight ourselves in God. And so let's look a little more carefully at Psalm 24. The first characteristic of God that is cause for rejoicing is simply this. He is the Creator and the Owner of all things. The earth is the Lord's. It's hard to make a more sweeping statement than this. The earth is the Lord's. So when you are out on a beautiful weekend in Oregon and you go hiking to a mountain lake, it's the Lord's. Or maybe you prefer to walk downtown and uh, see the farmer's market and smell the smells and see the sights downtown and you know what? It's the Lord's. Maybe you put your feet up in the hammock and you see the sun sprinkle through the leaves and you see the uh, spider spinning its web. It's the Lord's. It belongs to the Lord's. Notice what it says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. Everything in it, all that it produces all that your company produces, all that your garden produces, all that you enjoy from the grocery store, it all belongs to the Lord. It all stems from Yahweh. Everything that you seek can trace its roots back to God. Even those who dwell therein, that neighbor whose dog wakes you up at 8 o'clock in the morning, he belongs to the Lord. The coworker that you really, really love and you pray for belongs to the Lord. Your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your children belongs to the Lord. This is a statement that God is the sovereign owner of all things. It is impossible to overstate this. I can't say it too strongly that God is God and there is no other. He says, I am God and there is none like Me. There isn't. Because, and here's, here's His reason. For, okay, I, almost, I mean, seldom do you see in the Scripture where it makes an assertion and then doesn't say why. For He has founded it upon the seas. For He has established it upon the rivers by virtue of being the Creator and the Establisher of this world, He is the sovereign owner of it. Now, our experience doesn't generally reflect this. The conversations that you hear around you on a regular basis may have to do with religion and the importance of ritual or the value of meditation, as though the ritual and the meditation in and of themselves uh, somehow uh, answer life's deepest questions. And they don't. The purpose of the meditation and the purpose of the ritual and the purpose of all of this is so that you might know this God. Because it's God who answers the question. It is this God who is a worldwide God. It's, it's really... I mean, it's a challenge to remind yourself of this. It's one of the reasons that we gather together regularly so that we can remind ourselves that there is no one like our God and that it is our joy and privilege that He is our God. Because most of us somehow um, either merge or... uh, distill the God of the Bible into the God of our imagination who is much smaller. He'll always be much smaller. This God of our imagination is the God that likes people who look like us. This God of our imagination is the God who is convenient. The God who I pray to and I get what I want all the time. This God... Who is the god of my imagination? Is the, the the modern god who who is comfortable on the periphery of my life, along with all of my other interests and hobbies. This is the god of my imagination, but that is not the god of the Bible. It is. It, I can understand why you might not get fired up about having a god on the edge of your life somehow, because what he's establishing here in this first um, stanza of this song is that God is at the center. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything revolves around Him. He alone is God above all gods. He is not to be negotiated with. He is not to be dismissed. He is not to be pandered with. Because... Earth is His and the fullness of it because He founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. That He is God, the God who created, the God who owns, the God who is sovereign over all. If you believe that about your God, it does put Him at the center and it does change the joy that you have in belonging to Him. See, even that, even saying it that way is part of the issue. I belong to Him. He does not belong to me. I talk about Him like He's my God. He's not my God. He is God. And I happen to relate to Him because He was generous to me and gave me His Son as a sacrifice for my sins. So God is central. He is owner. He is creator of all things. That's His first reason for rejoicing that that God is here and among us. The second reason that he delights that God is among us is that God is holy and not to be trifled with. See again, this is a big blast in the face of, of I think, of, of modern Christianity, that takes or leaves God, that fits Him in where it's convenient and not where it isn't convenient. Where it's advantageous, but not where He isn't advantageous. Because look at the question here. The question is, who who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who will stand in His holy place? If we're talking about this God who is uh, large and central to all things. Who can approach Him? And His answer to that question, who can have a relationship with this God? His answer to that question is those who do not treat Him lightly. His answer to the question, who can ascend His holy hill? The one who does not trifle with God. The one for whom God is most important. And he has really four expressions of that importance. He who has clean hands. The way that he or she acts is a way that does not incur guilt. They do things that are good as opposed to doing things that are... uh, Foolish or bad. He who has a pure heart. So the, the good things that they do, they do with good motives. It, it isn't just that they accidentally did something good or that they did something good with bad motives, which is very possible and you see it all the time. This person does good and they do it from a pure heart with, a, um, with good motives. Third criteria there is that they do not lift up their soul to what is false. There is not the either the careless allegiance to false gods, where I assume that the central thing in my life is my job or my family or my possessions or my education or any of those other things that we idolize, but rather. You don't lift up your soul there. You don't don't give them your allegiance. You give your allegiance only to Yahweh, the King of glory. You don't lift up your soul to what is false. And the fourth criteria then is it does not swear deceitfully. There's a deep down honesty before God and men. You see, this person who from really from the inside out expresses the desire to live a holy life before God that person is invited into his presence they, they don't earn his going into his presence this isn't a you know measuring up sort of a thing this is this is a the kind of thing where recognizing who God is makes me adjust my life to his importance I adjust my life to His holiness, to His purity. Rather than dismiss it and say, you know, boys will be boys and God will forgive me and it will be okay. That's not the way that people who have a relationship with this God act. When this God enters the city, when this God enters your life, you adjust to Him in the way that you live. That's what he's saying. You don't trifle with him. You don't make him a matter of convenience. Put him on the periphery. You consult him in all things. Clean hands, pure heart. You don't lift up your soul to what's false and you don't swear deceitfully. That person receives blessing and righteousness. Essentially, it is that expression of faith that issues in my life that gives me The blessing of righteousness from the God of my salvation. That's what he's saying, is that you adjust your life and receive from God what you could not gain on your own. Such as the generation says of those who seek him, who seek the face of God. See, whether it's a, whether it's on a Sunday morning, whether it's every day, uh, figuring out how you're going to open your Bible and seek God. It isn't always about how you feel about it. It isn't always about whether you have time to to fit it in. It's about, am I seeking God? Because my pursuit of God betrays my belief in who He is. See, I'm not going to pursue Him if He's just on the periphery of my life and is some small entity out here. But if He is who He says He is, if He's this, in the, uh, the owner, the creator, and the Lord of all things, and He's at the center, and I pursue Him, I can't expect that, I have, that reorienting my life around Him will result in blessing. And that's what He's suggesting here. When you seek Him, you'll find blessing and righteousness from the God of your salvation. And so then, He gets to the occasion here of um, establishing why on this occasion of the ark coming into the to the city of god that there is so much cause for rejoicing and it is because god is a glorious king who is victorious overall strong and mighty in battle it is because god himself is a victorious warrior and he will win that i rejoice that he's my god and so I mean, the the imagery is um, is really striking here. He invites. I mean, this is, the song is written to the gates and the doors, as though as though they need to help the people get that this king of glory is amazing. Lift up your heads. Be lifted up, O doors. In other words, make way for the King of glory. Who is the King of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Some of the reason that some of us, I don't think, get too into it. That we never are completely convinced. That yes, in fact... This God, our God, is a God who should make my heart happy. Is that we don't really believe that He is as powerful and as good and loves us as much as He does? You see, here He's saying, "The Lord is strong and mighty, he is mighty in battle, and He is on our side." But some of us get, get we get beat down by the experiences of life to the point that it's just like i'm not sure and psalm twenty four is a reminder that God wins. It is a reminder that you and I can trust him as we move forward in life to really bring victory now yeah i'm going to, i'm going to lose some battles and i'm going to be disappointed sometimes, and i'm going to be uh really Even depressed at times. But the reality is that Yahweh, this God, He wins. And it's really His victory that is the, is the story of creation. It's the story of the Bible. From the beginning to the end is the story of God's ongoing battle and victory. So that in the end, we get to um, the cross and resurrection of Jesus where the final battle is won. We don't even experience the victory of this final battle now. We have to, we have to trust God, that the final victory is good. That it is going to happen, that we will experience that we are his people. All of this requires faith. But in the end, we can say with the Apostle Paul, O oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? This God, this God mighty in battle, wins. Lift up your gates. A lift up your heads, O gates. Lift, up, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. The Lord of hosts is the, uh, another, I mean, the, the literal um, expression of that is Lord Sabaoth. We're going to sing that in a few moments in How Firm a Foundation. Lord Sabaoth. He is the Lord of Hosts. The Lord of Hosts means he is the God who commands the armies. He's not just some sort of angelic, you know, harp playing group that he's in command of. He is the Lord of the armies of heaven. They are the armies of heaven that march against the the dragon and the beast on the last day. This is a this is the army of the Lord over which nothing else can stand. Who is the King of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And so it's my privilege this morning to remind you that you are here on purpose. You're not here because you have a ritual to attend to. You're not here because you're a religious person. You are here because you have the privilege and the joy and the delight of having the God who created the universe who now owns and commands it to be your God. You have a God who is holy and right and good and central to all of history to be your God. You have a God who is victorious Victorious in war, who is strong in battle, who has conquered the the chief previously unbeaten enemy of your soul. You have him for your God. It's my privilege to remind you of that, and I trust that as you rehearse what God who God is and what He has done for you, it will give you cause to delight yourself in God because you are related to Him through Jesus. It is really that that is all of our mission. To find our hearts happy in Jesus today, tomorrow, the next day, and ultimately forever. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, Commander of the armies of heaven, Creator of the ends of the earth, the holy and awesome God. I confess, first of all, that I have not treated You that way all the time. I confess that my heart does not respond to You um, like it should. And so, God, I pray that You would uh, free me from the the trifles and the trivialities that uh, consume me. That I might delight that I have You for my God. God, would You help all of us to do that? Would You grant us faith to believe Uh, in this final victory won by Jesus on the cross that we might enjoy You forever. Amen.